guys, what is happening? Welcome back to the show. It's Creating Space, and I'm your host, Wes Knight, episode number 42, and this is an episode that I have been so juiced to roll out to you guys. This is Stuart Sheldon, and not only is Stuart one of the best fine artists in all of the Miami area, Stuart is one of the most stand-up human beings I've ever met. He's a pure iconoclast. He is not afraid to go away from the direction of society, and his passion and enthusiasm for life is so infectious, and I had to get him on the show. He was introduced to me by Della Hyman, the owner and creator of the Winwood Yard, someone that I met on the Lululemon hike, and Stuart was a fantastic introduction. I cannot tell you how excited I am to bring to you such an incredible mind in Stuart Sheldon, and you're going to love this fantastic podcast. So without any further ado, let's open up the mind of one of the most brilliant creatives in the Miami district, Mr. Stuart Sheldon. I'm here with a legend, a literal legend in the art district here in Miami. We went to Starbucks to grab a cup of coffee to chat and prep ourselves for this interview today. And he literally doesn't pay for a thing as he walks through the city. This is Miami's premier artist. This is Stuart Sheldon. Stuart, what's happening, man? Welcome to the show. Thank you, buddy. The the one thing you said there that was accurate was my name. The rest of it I cannot vouch for, but thank you very much for having me. I am excited to be in your studio studio here. Fancy, nasty studios here. And in the Wynwood district. This is the Little River District. The Little River the, District. Sort of the of new Miami. the new Wynwood. I like it. Miami is moving and evolving and growing so quickly. I, each time I come down, I'm in a different city, it seems like. To be in your studio and to see everything that has come out of your mind powerfully onto its muse. I mean, wow, this is incredible. Thank you. It's uh, it's a beautiful space. It's a sacred space. Uh, I, I love being in here, and I love just sort of getting lost in the moment. Is that lost in the moment aspect what drew you to art in the first place? Well, parts of it. I do like there's a liberation, there's a freedom, there's a purity, um, there's an immediacy. All of those things drew me into fine art. Um, What originally drew me into art, I originally wanted to be a filmmaker. And when I was 16 years old, I went to Raiders of the Lost Ark when it just came out. And believe it or not, that goofy commercial, you know, blockbuster movie made me so exhilarated and so excited that when I came out, I said to myself inside, I want to do something that makes people feel the way I feel right now. I want to, I want to create things that do this to other people. So the germ was really there in my teenage years where I I felt so exhilarated as a consumer of art that I knew I wanted to in some way tap into that and as a creator as well. And you were in Miami at this time, I assume. Um, I might have even been at summer camp, but I was living in Miami at the, at the time. Yeah, I was in high school here in Miami. The summer camp days are highly impressionable. I can't tell you how many things that I explored in the summer camp days, man. And, and to hear that actually a passion of yours that would turn to be your lifestyle was given to you at such a young age, a lot of people don't get that uh, award, so to speak. That's that's awesome that you were able to, to sense that. Um, did you begin to pursue art immediately from there, or did you tuck that one away in the back pocket? Mm-hmm. It very much did not. And uh, I was, uh, it, it was many years until I, uh, over 10 years till I actually drove at art specifically. I, I didn't really know 
any better. So I studied business in college and came out and was a businessman and, um, really a businessman. I I could not see that at all. Yeah. I got offered a job, a wall street gig right out of college and, and not knowing any better. Um, I took it and, uh, I spent five years with a big investment bank as a broker in Miami and, um, you know, learned a great deal about life and, and priorities, um, Hit me with some of those priorities that you've taken. Well, from. you know, money, it clearly does not buy happiness. I had many extremely filthy, wealthy clients that were so unhappy and so mean spirited and uh, just so overwhelmingly focused on what they had and uh, materially and worrying about it constantly and not using the time that that, that material wealth would allow them to enjoy themselves and, and, and do the things that I think you and I would both do if we had sure. significant uh, sums of money. So I learned that, you know, it's about time. The value of that, the, the asset that's most valuable in life is time. And if Absolutely. you have time and you have the ability to appreciate and be in that time, be in that mo- those moments, um, be activated, uh, be productive, uh, be romantic, um, then you're living. That's a life well lived. And that's, that's what I've been driving at, you know, since I left that Wall Street. Game. So you're speaking about time in that moment where you're starting to get around all these nasty people and it's really affecting you. Walk me through Stuart in that time of his life and what was going on inside uh, the six inches between the ears there. Well, there was a lot going on. I, uh, at 22, I, I went straight from college. 30 days later, I was suit and tie Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Miami Herald, you know, sh- shaving, what, what are they called? Wingtip shoes. I mean, <laughs> I was that guy and I was expected to work on Saturdays and it was a no-nonsense grinding sales gig and uh, kind of take no prisoners, cold calling. It was it, it really takes the soul out of a person if they don't have that particular constitution and I didn't, um, although ironically I was good at it. And I'm a, sure. people, I'm a people person, but in my early twenties, while my friends were tripping around Europe and, you know, kind of taking their year gap year or whatever, doing their thing, I was, I was just in the, you know, cockpit trying to, trying to make my commissions that month, right. which was a very scary thing. Cause every month your, your income is zero. I mean, my salary was like, I don't even know a thousand bucks a month or something like that it was all commission driven. So you eat what you kill. And, uh, I really felt that it wasn't who I was. And yet, you know, I didn't see an escape route. So I was, I was just driving and driving and, um, that's a scary place to be when you, when you're fully aware that this is not where you want to be, but you're unaware of how to even begin to get out of it. Right. Precisely. God, it's terrifying. I mean, I, I, I would think to myself, like, if I'm 85 years old and I say, you know, I'm saying to my grandkids, boy, I was a great stockbroker. I, I was, it, I was going to kill myself. <laughs> that was just not okay. Um, and, uh, it, it wasn't until I was 25 years old, three years into the program that I had this epiphany, um, that I could make a change. I never really understood that I could change gears. I could change directions just because I grew up in this kind of what I can call a conveyor belt mentality where you there was a program and you went to school and you got good grades and you got a good job and you got a promotion and you know you got a family and you moved to the suburbs or whatever and I was on that program even though that was very much and is not who I am um 
but at 25, when I had seemingly the world, I had a house, I had a convertible, I was a, the youngest vice president at the company, I was making six figures, I was on vacation in the Greek islands, and I was on the deck of a ship, it was a beautiful night, and beautiful people everywhere, music playing, and I was staring out at the waves, and the, the moonlight was had this beautiful purple glow on the waves, and I was totally miserable. And I realized in that in that moment that if I am miserable in this setting, I something is terribly deeply wrong and fundamentally wrong with my life. And it was there that I I realized I can I can change the game. I can change go- course, and I will change course. And it took me another year and a half to actually leave my job, but. I left at 27. The next day, I started film school to pursue, you know, creativity and um, haven't looked back since. And The creating space moment. That's the moment, the aha, the tipping point where a human being understands that where they are is not where they need to be. And they all of a sudden have the gall and the gumption to finally make a decision. Now, you, you mentioned that it took a little bit of time from that point of recognition uh, to actually pivoting fully out of that. What was the process? Were you reverse engineering that pivot and trying to make it as uh, predictable as possible? Or tell me about That's that. That's a great question. I, first of all, once I knew, because this was a gut check, this was a soul this was soul stuff. This was like, sure. this wasn't just, I need to change my career. So explain, explain the difference. To well, the I, I, I was not manifesting who I was and who I was meant to be and who I was, who I was meant to be good at. I was, I was being something that I thought the world wanted me to be, mm. you know, and I was good at it. And I looked on paper. I was a rock star. I was just like this young hustler, you know, making money and, and so forth. But it, it was fake. It was, right. and it was exploitative too. It was like this grimy sales thing, and it was all about money. And anytime I would meet someone, it was like, how much I got to figure out their net worth so I can get to the conversation about managing their money. And sure, it's I don't give a fuck about people's money. I mean, that doesn't. That's not of interest yeah. to me. It's it. The subject matter just wasn't interesting to me. I mean, you really want to break down like in terms of what you are talking about all day long. I it was not. It was not a topic that I found exhilarating. So. Um, so to your question, I, 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 it, it wasn't like, okay, oh, the bell went off and I'm out. I, I struggled greatly because I was deeply terrified that the whole world was going to laugh at me for the rest of my life. Like there's the dumbass that left like the fattest gig. He'd be the richest guy we all know now if he stayed there. Right. And, and everyone would have just been mocking me while I went off to just, you know, write poems and make films or what have you. And, um, and so it took it took some time, and I was very surreptitious because my bosses were they were good guys, they were good to me. I didn't want to betray them, but I was like, I took the LSAT, you know, to see maybe I'll go to law school. I took uh, I, I applied to film school. I mean, I was trying to get all these sort of like escape routes. Sure. Um, but finally, I just walked into their office when I I'd gotten accepted to film school, and I and I I said I'm I'm out, I'm leaving, you know, and they were both kind of. How exhilarating was that moment? Well, it was it was frightening. And like I said, they were good guys. I wasn't like going in there to tell them to just like kiss my ass or anything. They'd been really good to me. They had sure. really, um, really cultivated me and anointed me kind of in ways with their their wisdom. Um, so it was very tender. It was very delicate. But it, I think if I look at him, if you looked in my eyes at that moment, you know, you saw the sincerity that, that, that I was, mm. you know, bringing and, 
and the gratitude sure. for what they had given me thus far. So it was all very, very earnest and very sincere. And so I had a guest on a couple of uh, months ago. His name's Patrick Bet David. He's a, a phenomenal entrepreneur, coach, uh, mentor, leader. He said that when he finally had his tipping point, he made his decision. He said that people could not recognize his eyes. In that moment, he made a change and it, he was never going back to that life. As you walked out of that door, who, who was that steward that exited? What happened next? Yeah. Well, uh, as I walked out of the door, I suspect I felt pretty light. Um, but the real moment, like if you were going to, if this was a movie that we were making right now, yeah. you, we would we would have cut to the next scene would have been me standing on my bicycle pedals in a t-shirt, you know, not shaven, shaven, flip-flops, riding to film school, literally, um, instead of driving, you know, in traffic to work, I was rode my bike to University of Miami, um, a few weeks later and, uh, and that was just utter exhilaration. I was really proud of myself. I was really excited. It was like a childlike excitement, like like just sandbox kind of excitement and just eager, an eagerness I hadn't felt in so long. And um, just to, you know, really, I feel like I was finally vectoring up towards what I wanted to mm. be when I grew up. And I was doing it on my terms. And you were aligned with that universal energy. And I believe so wholeheartedly with that when you start to walk in your divine, righteous path and you start to figure out what it is that you want and you're, you're standing in the, the light of that and accepting it, there is an energy source there that is real in that. I mean, there's no wonder. What, how old were you at that, at that time? 27. 27 years old. And you've been chasing this dream of art ever since. I have, you know, it hasn't been a straight line. It's been a very wiggly line, to be really? honest with you. And it's just in the last few years that things have gotten um, particularly interesting in terms of the world kind of paying attention and um, getting some respect that that's really, really feels, um, it, it's very... Um, so explain to me the world getting attention. Uh, as an artist, that's really, that is a big moment. Yeah. It is. Walk me through that process. Well, there's so much to it, but you know, as any artist knows, you're an artist as well. I mean, you decide you want to do this and you have no idea what you're doing, but you just start taking one step in front of the other and you slowly cultivate your voice, your skill, your look, your thing. Um, that in my case, you know, took about I took about 5 years as a fine artist. Sure. Um, cuz remember, I started as a filmmaker. But then I, I left the film business after a few years of, of school and, 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 and I worked in L.A. And it was just there's too many moving parts and so forth. I needed the immediacy of fine art making. And, uh, and I came to that a number of years later. Um, and, and, and when I was about 35 or 6. And so it took five years to just get my voice and not be derivative as a, as a, as a fine art, as a, as a painter. Right. You know, I mean, you start and you're like, Oh, I like Basquiat. I like this guy. And you, you kind of take pieces and then ultimately you bake those in enough work that something unique comes out of those pieces and no longer looks like a Basquiat. It's like, Oh, that's, this is know. Sheldon. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and like, maybe there's a little bit of that in there, but but it's not clearly derivative. And so that talk took a while. Um, of course, the day that you start painting, you want to be famous that day. You want people sure. to like buy your paint. You know, you want to be made, but that's an illusion that I think every creative person um, falls in, you know, or dreams about. But at any rate, so um, 
your question was like the moment when the world started paying attention to make a very long story short. Um, I left, I was in the Bay area when I started painting. I was, as I said, I was about 36 years old and, um, I spent 10 years there and I really, really kind of hammered on the underground scene there, had a little bit of recognition, got, you know, sold some work. I mean, definitely, uh, definitely started making work that was interesting and that I'm proud of. Um, but never really could get the major galleries to pay attention. Um, you know, got a big stack of rejection letters that I'll make a piece of art out of one day. Sure. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. moved here, uh, seven years ago to look after my mom, um, who needed some love and to have our second child, um, and had to go back and get a real job, uh, for a while. So my art making in, in those, uh, first five years of being back in Miami, my hometown, um, was very minimal and you know, sort of on ice. I mean, very much alive, but kind of cryogenically frozen a couple of pieces here and there, a couple of charity events that I would donate a piece to, um, but then two years ago, uh, as I was, I'm, I'm finishing a memoir, um, called a lonely fool's masterpiece. I'm still finishing it, but, uh, I was getting really, really close to a significant kind of a revision that was, you know, I, it's close. It's sure. pretty, it's pretty close. And my style of art making has a lot to do with creative manifestation. And by that, I mean, actually trying to make real something that is critical to my happiness and my satisfaction in life. And by those things, I mean a, a life partner, children, um, six, financial success. Um, in this case, I wanted to manifest the success of this book that was nearing completion. And so I saw, and this happens periodically, um, I saw the piece that I wanted to make. It's epic, 12 feet by 5 feet, big, hot red canvas on which I was going to chop up the covers of all my favorite books that I ever read that, that made, meant the most to me. And in the middle of the canvas would be the, the title page of my manuscript, A Lonely Fool's master, Masterpiece, literally eight and a half by 11 Times New Roman title page with the title by Stuart Sheldon, the date, you know, um, that I was sending out to Incredible. agents. And so I took all these chopped up book covers and infused them through and around um, and within my book to put the essence of the, you know, their greatness into my book and to make it one of the best books ever written because that's the name of the piece was the best books ever written, Love including it. my own book. So that piece was underway. And as I started that piece, I got a phone call from a local painter, fairly renowned, who said, hey, I'm starting this art collective and we've got this really interesting group show for Art Basel 2014. We'd like to invite you into the show. I said, wow, that's I'm so touched. I'm honored. I hadn't been invited into a show in quite some time. I said, it just so happens that I've actually started this piece and, you know, I'm kind of stoked about it. And um, so she's like, yeah, let me come take a look at it. She comes to the studio. She loves it. She's feeling it. Anyways, the, the show opens the Friday before Art Basel 2014. And I'm sitting at Panther Coffee that very morning. And I get a text from someone that says, hey, congratulations, man. That's really awesome. And I send back, like, what are you talking about? So apparently the Miami Herald had gone the previous day to do a preview of the show and had that morning 
um, published their pick of the week for for the week ahead sure. for, of our Basel week. And it was a photograph of my painting and with a heads up to go see the show. No Meeting way. House. So the opening to the show was that same night. It was mobbed. I sold my piece for 10,000 bucks, which was Holy. like, you know, considerably more than I'd ever sold a piece of work for. Cause might I might as well have been a million dollars. Yeah. But I mean, I just priced it aggressively cause I felt like it was strong and why not? And who cares? And I haven't sure. really been in the game for a few years but like, boom, it sold and everything changed that day. Everything changed. I mean, it, it just, I don't know exactly how and why or what happened, but I got invited to have solo shows that, you know, last year, 2015 in San Francisco and Dallas. Um, I got juried into this and that, um, the commission started rolling in and, uh, this year was a beautiful solo show and I was in scope and, you know, I mean, I just, it's all just been happening and I've just been trying to ride it and enjoy it. And Gratitude and abundance is, is big time, isn't it? It is. And, and I'm just trying to stay on my game, on the work, keep that work hot, keep it exciting, keep it fun to make. Um, it's becoming much more message oriented, much more social justice oriented sure. given the, the obvious. Um, so it's, it's still very much about manifestation, but now I'm, instead of necessarily manifesting things for me, I'm I'm moving more towards manifesting things for the world, for people that I love, for uh, disenfranchised, for underserved. Just you know, being being an, much more of an activist, um, and hoping that that the energies in in these works can make some difference. Of, of you know, somehow. well, that's part of the life process, I believe. Is once you fill your cup up to where it runs over, then you have a civil duty to pour over onto others and to, to give and spread and, and create an avenue for your voice to create change. So let's, let's back up just a little bit because there's so much that's so rich, that story. There's so many pieces, directions that I could go, but let's start because manifestation and law of attraction is extremely massive to me. Felt like I have done it since I was a little kid without even realizing that I was doing it. My walls in my room, 12 by 12 room, very tiny. There was not a speck of white paint. There were pictures of professional athletes everywhere in my room. I knew I was going to be it even before I knew I was going to be it. And it was just because I believed it because almost I was ignorant enough to believe it. I didn't allow anyone else to tell me any different. Walk me through your process of manifestation. I mean, putting it onto the the canvas. Are you journaling and writing these things? Can you walk the creating space tribe through some of your modalities? For absolutely, that? absolutely. Well, the most profound of those experiences, the one that really caught me by surprise, to be honest with you, was I was 35 years old and just divorced and super broken, really, really deeply saddened, and heartbreak is heart, I was heartbroken. Oh. I, my confidence was utterly destroyed. I was so embarrassed um, because my parents divorced when I was a little boy, and I always vowed my whole life that I would not get divorced, that I would get this right, you know, because sure. I, I like saw. So here I am, and I, I, you know, good friends, bad mates kind of thing, and, and unwound this marriage, no kids. So it wasn't, you know, luckily, but I was just a sad, broken guy. Sure. And, couldn't quite pick up the pieces and and so it was just just wanted a partner just wanted to share life I, I i mean i was um you know it wasn't like the lights had gone out in my whole life or anything but i i 
I definitely, sadness was the pervasive emotion that, of my days for quite some time. And, um, I spoke to a counselor and I, you know, I, I, I spoke to friends and basically one day I, I, um, I wrote a poem to my parents because I was home visiting and, and I, I wanted to thank my parents. I was in this very raw place where I was kind of getting back to the fundamentals of what I had and what, what, what was good in my life. And my parents were very kind and they are very kind. And even though their marriage didn't work out, they still were very loving. And so they, um, they, they, we, we went out for breakfast one morning and, and I was so grateful for them that I decided to write them a poem and I wrote a poem I was going to give each of them a copy and I wanted it to be look a little bit prettier <laughs> truly to listen instead of again times new roman 8 and a half by 11 <laughs> piece of paper that I printed out so I I had someone had some paints and I just sort of painted up I glued the paper to some cardboard and I painted on it and just to make it look a little more interesting and I gave it to them as as gifts and it was kind of dorky and all but I actually liked the the mechanics of the painting. I liked the application of the paint. There was sort of in and out. There was a dance to it. There was sort of gymnastics um, in some of the motions and the choices. So that was when the painting thing kind of kind of got me interested. And I went back to the Bay Area, um, went and got some paint supplies one day and started just painting cardboard and this and that. So fast forward and I'm, I'm in this really sad place. I really want to figure this this life partner thing out. So I decided that I was going to try to see in my mind's eye what this this woman, what who she was and actually visualize her to the degree that I could. So I started to sketch um, the silhouette of this woman's body. And what eventually I had landed on was this triumphant woman with her arms raised, muscular, sexy, super curvy, clearly kind of someone who had who had power, um, who had jubilance, who was very positive. Um, I couldn't see her face. So like, it was just, it was there was no head. There was just like a torso and the arms and the right. sort of the hips. But, um, I landed on this, this silhouette. I kind of perfected it, actually create, cut it out. So it was a silhouette. So, so it was a stencil and I started to apply that silhouette to canvases and then fill in the actual line of the silhouette with the word now, N-O-W, in my very, very finest brush. So, I mean, from a, you couldn't see that this was the word now. It just looked like it a looked line. It looked like a line. But as soon as you got right up next to the canvas, you could actually make out N-O-W, N-O-W. I mean, Holy smokes. You know, hundreds, thousands of times. I made 35 of these paintings over two years just in my own space, in my, just, just for my own sort of exercise. They actually sold out um, – which was interesting because it was early in my career. So it was kind of helping to manifest that, that part of my life. But that's beside the point. A couple of months after I finished the last of these paintings, I met somebody and she was cute and she was funny and she was confident and she was powerful. Um, she knew who she was. She knew what she wanted. Um, but the most shocking thing is that it was it was her. I mean, it, it was an outline of her body that I had drawn. She could stand in front of that painting and, and it was just like a chalk outline of her. Wow. So that, that was a, a moment. Um, talk about, uh, you, ha you have an affinity for romanticism. I mean, talk about the epitome of it, huh? 
You know, it, it was one of those things that caught me as much by surprise as anybody. Um, how, lo- how long into the relationship did you realize, holy smokes, this is actually her? Well, you know, when we first met, I, I, I definitely was digging her and feeling her. It wasn't like, oh, this was it, you know, game sure. over. I know I'm going to marry that person. It wasn't that, but it was definitely like, um, you know, I sort of took a sip and like, I want to finish this drink, you know what right, I mean? Right, like, right. It, it was, so it was definitely, she was lovely from the beginning. Um, it wasn't until I really, you know, I, I don't know how long it took before I was like, wait a minute, the painting and like that, that, that coin dropped a little bit later. Uh, but I started to, you, you know, it was the first time that it was so obvious, like that something that I had actually visualized and organized and contrived, um, with a series of actions designed specifically for a particular outcome. And then that outcome happened. It was the right. first time that that happened in such a complete, um, and to- total form that I, I really scratched my head and said, wow, that, that was amazing. And I don't know what it was or how it was. And I never read the secret. I mean, uh, sure. you know, but, but that was cool. And maybe there's something to this intentionality. Um, and in fact, fast forward, we got married, we went to have a child. We ended up having enormous difficulties, having a child miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And finally we got pregnant again. And, you know, my wife told me, I, I can't do that. If this doesn't work, I, I can't do this anymore. This right. is it. So it was like, whoa. And all I really want at this point in my life is a child. Like sure. that's like the next milestone that that's, you know, so I'm looking at this, like, wait a minute, you're just putting an ultimatum on me. Like, what? And, and I have no control over it kind of thing. So I went to my studio again, made a series of paintings designed expressly only to bring a child called bounce, like bouncing baby boy. And these, these balls of joy falling from heaven through the paths of our lives and so forth. And, um, and our child was born. That's incredible. That, that pregnancy. So, um, you know, it, it it's it's gotten now to the point where like i'm sure my book's going to be successful yeah, you know what i mean absolutely. because like i with the paintings are made the vibe is in the world and if nothing else someone pointed out to me the other day well because i haven't really had time to focus on my book the last two years because my my art career has been been really really just right. ramping up so fast and so hard and, and delightfully so but someone said well don't you understand your book has already you know your book is already successful. Sure. Like your book has totally, cause the it book is not finished the, being written yet. No, no. And it will be written. But know? I mean, like, like you wrote the book and because you were finishing the book, you made the painting and because you made the painting, you know, and boom, boom, boom. And well, I'm there's like, still more chapters. I'm sure that, that are still to come. Uh, yeah. you know, the magic is all around Stuart and, you know, he who does not believe in magic fails to receive the magic. So what's incredible is that you've had this opportunity that presented itself your own manifestation, your own creation, it came to fruition and then you were aware enough to catch on to it, latch on to it, and then use it to your advantage to create and design and engineer the life of your dreams. Tell me, as you're going through this road, can you look back to some of the mentors or some of the people who influenced you in these times that were tough and that you, I mean, it's not easy being an entrepreneur and putting one foot in front of the other, no matter how motivated you are at times, life sometimes will um, create tension and make it tougher than what you originally thought. And although you, you have the, the ability to pick yourself back up and keep going, who are some of the major influencers in your life 
thus far. Um, wow. I mean, some of the influencers are not necessarily people I know, but people who whose achievements I've just admired so much. Um, Picasso is a person that I just deeply admire because he just, there was no media that he couldn't, that he didn't revel in. There was nothing, there was no project that he wasn't excited. He didn't have a childlike excitement about. Right. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about this notion of reframing the, the idea of work as productivity because work is a bad word and, you know, it's a pejorative in our culture. But being productive is obviously something, especially in an art studio, it's all about productivity. You know, you, what did you get done in there today? Right. And whether it's, you know, painting or sweeping the floor, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of things to do. Um, Why do you think that society has framed it as work and that you can literally smell the people who have work on their face and look drained? What is that about the social construct? Have you ever thought about that? I've thought a lot about it. And I, I think that we're still really driven by the Puritan ethos that, you know, said like you get to heaven through hard work and you got to cut the trees down and build a village and build a church. And, you know, there's no time for dancing and there's no time for, you know, for singing. You just got to kind of bang it out to, to, to build the kingdom of God, you know? Sure. And I really believe that uh, as much as we might not want to admit it, that a lot of that is still very evident in the fact that, you know, we get two weeks off a year and everyone's tripping about those two weeks because gosh, what if they miss that big email? And, uh, we don't, uh, we, 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 we don't work to live in this culture. We live to work. And I don't know why that, you know, that people haven't recognized that at this, this far into the, to the experiment. But, you know, if you go abroad, most other folks, you know, appreciate they, they work and hopefully they enjoy their work. And I'm, um, I'm not suggesting that, that works is a bad thing. Quite the contrary. You, hopefully your, your passion and your, and your work converge, but, um, we just, uh, choose for some reason as a culture to, uh, to prolong or postpone joy, mm. we postpone joy here. And I'm not sure why that is. I, I don't, um, it's a scary thing to notice the people that are caught on that treadmill and do not have outlets for joy. Is so is so true when you when you talk about how society has built that to a machine, very big machine. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm 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 very you know I have two young children now, so I'm very keen on I'm keeping them free from that machine. Um, how do you do that? What is your method for that? I mean, you know, I, first of all, um, there's a time to work and there's a time to play, and you know, they're to their separate times. Mm -hmm. um, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, I'll be able to guide them unlike myself to study the things and immerse them, their, themselves in the things that they truly enjoy, no matter how arcane or remote or eclectic they are. If they truly love Russian poetry, we'll get in there, man. Yeah. Deep, deep dive, you know, right. go into it. Don't worry about the job market. That'll figure itself out. There's ways to, to play that. So, um, I was so focused on the kind of like, you know, social, the, where, where I was supposed to fit into this, as I said earlier, conveyor belt mentality, like this one nice, clean young man, um, that I didn't pay attention to what was really deep inside of me that I wanted to know more about. Sure. Um, so hoping to help them discover the things that they're excited about and then hoping to help facilitate their 
immersion in those things. Right. And that moves into the, the activist part of you, that you are making a big change in your kids' lives and constructing their belief systems and their minds to be able to chase and have the audacity to chase what it is that they love. What about this social activism that you've been talking about and the messages that you want to portray in your artwork? Guide us a little bit into your mindset with that piece. Sure, sure. Um, Well, this past year, this election was really grinding me down. Um, not just the end of it with Hillary and Trump, but the primaries with the Republicans and, you know, just so much, we've gotten to this place that's so mean spirited and the truth is, is irrelevant. You know, this so-called post-truth society, which the, the mere, the mere fact that there's, there's a name for this is, is so disturbing. Is it not? Um, it's totally it, disturbing. It's, it's so dystopian. I mean, it's, it's Orwellian really, but, um, it was clear to me that the the message that was that was paramount um, at the beginning of this year, really the end of last year, was to strike back against this willingness, this shameless willingness to to just lie and spew whatever it took to get out front and to win to win, to win in politics. Yeah. Like the Commonwealth, be damned! It wasn't about the people. It wasn't about the country. It wasn't about our future. It was about how do I win. What do I need to say to win? To win, and of course, ultimately that that tactic worked. Um, right. The guy who just was willing to say anything um, to win won because we're a gullible nation. We're ill-informed. Um, we're totally polarized. We're so broken. And uh, so, anyways, your question was about the social active. So I decided that I was going to use my art as a framework to speak out against these false narratives. So I made a show, and I think I mentioned that earlier. This I'm with the band. Um, and it was about the disenfranchised. It was about the people who are harmed by, um, by this disregard for the truth. Um, whether it's voters that are disenfranchised by these voter fraud laws, you know, voter ID laws that are, that are unnecessary, that are entirely superfluous, but yet are, are tilting the board towards one party. Um, gun laws that are, you know, deferent to, um, to this Second Amendment, this concept, this abstract idea of a right, um, and as soon as you say the word Second Amendment right, you you the conversation has to stop, or you're not a patriot, you're not an American, exactly, you're some sort of communist insurgent. Um, <laughs> whereas you know the, there's thirty some thousand you know gun deaths in America, there's like seventeen in England and zero in Australia. Sure, so something's terribly wrong here. Um, and I'm not against guns. I mean, not at all. I just, I'm, I'm just for sanity and reasonableness. So my show was very much geared towards trying to bring reason back in and trying to shine a bright light on the, uh, the damage that this, um, willingness to speak falsehoods, uh, shamelessly was causing to our country. Uh, so I spent my entire year this year making that show. It had 12 pieces, many of them ex- huge, eight feet by eight feet, very time consuming, um, with, you know, you can perhaps show some images to your, to your uh, audience, but guys, uh, we'll wrap that all on the show notes. So you'll be able to find his website, everything that all the pieces that he's speaking about, you'll be able to find those very easily. And, uh, of course the punchline of all of this is, you know, uh, 
the show opened a couple the show opened two weeks before election day we had another opening the night before the election and um a big activation in winwood with uh with my this big mural that i did with some friends and um, and of course we got our asses kicked. So, so I don't know how effective the messaging was. Um, but obviously the truth needs to be told. So, uh, in light of the, the, the Trump win and this profound sense of loss and, and fear and, uh, disillusionment that I, and so many people that I know feel, um, I feel very strongly that, that my work is just for the foreseeable future will be about uh, connection about mm. bringing, you know, this polarity, to, I, my particular, I'm particularly sensitive to the racial, racial polarities and racial tensions. Absolutely. It's just something that's important to me growing up in a very integrated world. So I'm really going to focus a lot of tension, uh, attention on, um, on trying to bring, you know, love and racial, understanding dialogue you know to the fore as much as i can um and uh and just keep working as much as i can to actually reach out to the red states go to the red states listen in the red states be um off my high horse sort of arrogant you know i know better um liberal point of view um, and try to find commonality. Um, really, that's one of the challenges that I've set for myself to really be open to that. That's not to say that I all of a sudden just say, oh, okay, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. Um, but be less militant, um, not less vigilant, mind you, sure. but less sort of arrogant, I guess is the word. Less, Got it. less arrogant because, you know, hey, it's sort of their country right now and, you know, I'm living in it. Right. But, um, anyways, I, that, that, I'm kidding. I mean, it's not, it's not, <laughs> us, it's not us or them. It's really not. That was part of the problem, but there is a very, very gross disconnect, um, to a large degree because of the information people have been fed and have, have consumed as truth. So how do you get back to the truth? I don't really know the answer to that, but I do believe that art is one of the ways the truth can be told without, with, without words. It can be told, um, implicitly, it can be told physically. And I feel that in this quote unquote post-truth society where words are no longer relevant or credible, um, artists, um, of all stripes are really challenged to step up and, um, be vehicles to communicate things that need so desperately to be communicated. Um, and that words have apparently failed. I love it. It's the basis that creating space, this whole platform is started behind because I feel similarly to how you feel about the disconnection with self and how I got to a place that I was so dark and so disillusioned that bad things could have happened had I made the final decision. Um, and I, I love the fact that you've gotten to a point uh, in your life now where it's a, a civil duty of yours and a responsibility that you're, that you're undertaking to make change and to listen and to begin the dialogue. And that's where change happens, really when you come in with all guards down uh, and you just sit down at the same table uh, and judge someone by the content of their character, um, which is so, so, so important. As we continue to, to navigate and push this thing into a, a really cool space, Stuart, talk to me a little bit about 
the legacy that you want to live and um, how you want to re- be remembered uh, once this life form that is Stuart Sheldon moves on and heads in a new direction? Well, there's several aspects to the legacy that I wish to lead. I mean, I, you know, the most enduring legacy is the most corny and the simplest, and that's to love and be loved. Nice. Um, and I sincerely believe that, especially now that I have children, it's it's really about when you're on your when I'm on my deathbed, what I believe will matter. Because when someone says to you, "You're literally like 90 years old, and you're like ventilator you know, but you're still cognizant and someone says hey buddy what mattered that question i i really don't think it's the company you sold or the book you wrote or you know the painting that's in the met um not that those things are not significant they are and but i think it really is about the love that you were able to express and the love that you were able to receive so Mm. so at a very primary level with my children with the people that i care about friends, family, what have you, I really do want to express love and I really do want to receive love. I've, you know, a lot of us I know are trouble receiving love. Sure. um, I'm one of those people who's learning to open up and become more vulnerable and accept what comes my way. I'm one of those. Likewise. And, uh, so that's one of the, one of the primary things is to be, be one of those people that goes through the world, um, and, you know, helps the, raise the love meter a little bit because I think that's, if we would all do that, wow. Um, but as a, as a creator, uh, my legacy, well, I'd, I'd like my work to be um, stand to the test of time. I'd like it to be studied. I'd like it to be considered interesting, um, evocative, uh, intellectual, intelligent, um, so, you know, I, I like to think that my work is now at a place where it's, it's ripened and, it's, and mm. it tastes good. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> Feels good as well. You walk into the studio, it's a brisk, it's an open, it's an energetic, vibrant feel. Every one of your paintings are communicating with each other as well as with you. Um, it, it, there's even a bit of... Uh, a bit of, I won't call it arrogance, but it's an understanding of your own truth and your own voice in the selection of where these paintings are and how they, and how their, their colors operate with each other. I mean, there's, you talk about intentionality. I could feel it when I walked in, man. It's, you know, it's, it's very cool to see you operating and even the way your vibe shifted when we got into your space here. And I love that we are grassroots. It's so organic that this podcast is so mobile and I can come in and set up shop where you feel most comfortable and we can dive into the depths and see what it's really about, man. Um, I'm just grateful, Stuart, that you've opened up this opportunity for myself and the Creating Space tribe to to get a little more familiar with you and get in behind the mind or inside of the mind of the of the guy who is really making waves. I mean, the gratitude is just, you know, it, it, it's coming, it's oozing out of the pores. And if I could throw a little, a little bit your way, man, um, the more you continue to impact, you know, uh, life is a mirror. It's always going to continue to come back to you. And uh, if there's anything I can do in the future, as well as a creating space tribe, those who, who feel compelled by Stuart's story, wh- where, where can we find you? Well, thank you, Wes. I, I'm honored, truly, that you are here. You're a gentleman, and you're Cheers. doing good work. And uh, you and I have very um, interesting convergent paths, and I admire your journey very much. 
Uh, StuartSheldon.com, S-T-U-A-R-T-S-H-E-L-D-O-N.com is, you know, home base. Uh, and I'm on Instagram at Stuart underscore Sheldon. I'm in Miami. I'm in this studio every day. If folks are in Miami, I mean, you know, and they're part of your tribe, they're part of my tribe. Sure. So, they're welcome to come through and just kick it on the couch and you know, have a laugh. Um, but all kidding aside, I mean, I, I, I am really about collaboration and ex- expansion and connection. So um, it's about like-minded people getting together and trying to fix this world and, and bring joy. I'm going to throw this out here. I haven't had a – I was just looking at the my watch to see the date. It's the 27th of December. I have not had a repeat um, guest onto the show yet. I would love to come back to this space on the 27th of, of December in 2017 and just see the difference, notice the change, see the evolution, and we sit right back here in the same spot and uh, reminisce and reflect and then continue to, to push forward and see how the narratives maybe have shifted or evolved. Done. Love it. Love it. Guys, you got to reach out to Stuart Sheldon. You can find him, like he said on Instagram, Stuart underscore Sheldon, StuartSheldon.com. His prints, his work, his, uh, his ideas for life. Fantastic. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you very much. Stuart Sheldon, ladies and gentlemen, you can see why it was so important for me to get Stuart onto the show. He is just an incredible thought leader, extremely expressive, and he is an artist and an activist, and he is leading people in the right direction, an iconoclast of this age. You've got to get over and give him a follow. Matter of fact, why don't you hit the share button right now and think of one or two people who would really resonate with Stuart's story. I really believe that there are people there that need to hear this message, and I think you can be the connector. So hit the share button. Make sure you copy the link. Send it over to anyone that you think would love it. Give us a follow as well on Instagram or on Facebook. Get over to his website, stuartsheldon.com. Make sure you're connecting with us. And don't forget, if there is someone out there, a peak performer whose mindset you're really interested in diving into, shoot them over to me. Make sure you tag myself on Twitter as well as that peak performer. Make sure you get the conversation started. I'll align that interview. I'll go chase those peak performing mindsets that you're so passionate to learn from. It's been a beautiful ride, 42 episodes in, guys, and we're only picking up steam. I really appreciate every single one of you in the Creating Space tribe. And for all of you out there who are new, welcome. And I hope that you stay. I hope that you join the tribe and I hope that you contribute your mindset to us so that we can share in all of your greatness as well. Guys, have a great rest of the week. Mindset Monday coming to you right around the corner.